they're not that insane. It was like Sublime, and then I changed a couple things. It's like Sublime inherited and then changed a couple things. Anyways, I got all of that back, and oh, man, my life was back to normal. It was amazing. Your Honor, this is Exhibit 634 about why developers are insane. this idea about talking about pair programming. Okay. I think this is a thing that exists out there, but maybe people don't talk about it that much because it exists in a lot of different forms. So I was thinking maybe we could just talk about the who, what, where, when, why, how of pair programming. Maybe help, help some of our listeners out there get better at it or be able to ask for help and things like that. Greg, can you tell us what pair programming means to you? Oh, man. Well, pair programming is the concept, the very, very basics. It's the concept where two people are working on the same code base in some way. Sometimes only one person is typing. Other times you go back and forth. But the idea is that both people, I mean, there's like super militant ways to do it where like the two people have to look at the same screen and they have to share the keyboard. They can only type. There's like all these weird things people do. But... In my opinion, I've usually just sat with somebody and we've both worked on the same thing, looked at the same code, looked at the same problems, and maybe we're Googling things on two laptops, but we're writing code on the same computer. I would agree with that evaluation. I think that the classic idea of what pair programming is two brains, one computer. And that's been the classic definition. But with the way modern technology is, you don't actually have to physically be together to both be working on the same piece of code. Well, yeah, there was that thing that, uh, uh, what's it called? Um, Slack bought them. There was that program where you could you could control two, like you could call somebody on it and then it would create a... Like screencast? There was a, it was like a thing. There's also a live, uh, live code share or something like that in VS Code where you can actually share it through the actual editor itself. But Well, this thing was really simple. It was just you shared, it would basically... Do uh, video to video, whatever that's called, B to V to V, whatever. What's the term? The video thing. Sockets. Well, not sockets, because I'm going to get to that. There's sockets, but no, the video. There's like a tech technology that does shared video. It's like voice over IP, but it's for video. I don't know. It's standard in the browser. Can't believe. Come on. WebRTC. Yes, that. Good job. Amazing. <laughs> yeah, WebRTC. It would use WebRTC to share the video between the two devices, and then they would open up a socket between the two computers. And then that's how you would move the mouse. So whichever person was moving, there was like two scroll, two mouse buttons on the same screen. And then whoever clicked was the one who was actually controlling the UI. Yes. But both people could like highlight and circle things and then click and then change things. They could both see what people are doing. But instead of it like being in a program that had like video, I'm pretty sure, yeah, the person who whose computer was being controlled, that person didn't have to go to another program. Like the other person's mouse just showed up on their computer. Mm. It was really cool. And then Slack bought them. They were supposed to integrate it with their video tools. Then they integrated it with less technology and killed the product. Yeah, sounds about right. Sounds about right. But that thing was amazing. I used to use that all the time. Um, even between people that were like a cube or two away from me, it was just easier to just 
dial up and look at the same computer because then the person who's programming with you can use their setup, their mouse, their keyboard, whatever, their screens, however they want to code. And then you two would just put headphones on with your mic and you talk to each other. Yes. I've even done that interofficely. Yes. That is a good point because there are other ways to pair a program, I think, than actually two people actually physically sitting next to each other. And with tools like that, uh, it makes it so that the, the kind of physical space requirement is not really a thing anymore. Also, there is a school of thought that asynchronous tools are also, quote-unquote, pair programming. So things like code reviews hmm. or, you know, remote QA or something like that can consist of, quote-unquote, pair programming. Not sure how I feel about that one. I mean, it's the same thing as like working on a Google Doc live versus, hey, check this out when you get home. It's the same idea. I mean, GitHub itself creates pair programming. If you just like are both working on the same branch with the same code, that's somewhat pair programming. Like the whole idea is to increase the amount of eyes that people can have on one piece of code. Um, I've just always found that the best use case for pair programming is when you're trying to solve something that's really, really difficult. Ah, yeah. So we're getting into the when, when to pair programming. The why, the why of pair programming. Sure. The when or why, like I usually will pair program for a couple different reasons. One is that the person that I'm like coding with has equal or some very specific kind of knowledge about something that I'm coding. So it's like, I don't know if I'm coding something that's not typical, like not just like a regular React app, like I'm coding something that no that neither of us have built something that you specifically yourself do not know how to build yourself yeah like or you do like there's multiple use cases one use case is like yes both of us don't know how to build the thing or there's questions about how to implement certain things so then we kind of just tackle it together the other one is that you're trying to code something and then teach someone how to code at the same time mm, so there's like yes. those two sides of the coin yes those are two different and equally useful and effective ways of doing the pair programming thing. Mm -hmm. Also rubber ducking. Yeah. There have been many cases, you and I have done this, where one of us will be just completely stuck and the other one, and, and we'll say to the other person, hey, come, come look at this. Am I crazy? And then we end up sitting next to each other for hours and figuring stuff out and ordering burritos and mm -hmm. all kinds of stuff like that. And we end up knocking it out. And... That's a, a more impromptu kind of debugging, like fix my brain kind of pair programming. But I think it works for the same kinds of things that pair programming is good at. And it hits the same kind of synapses. You get more eyes on the project, sometimes having a different perspective. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's all, all you need is just, hey, put a semicolon right there. Yeah, I mean, a lot of times uh, it's just getting another, I mean, there's like something really good to just getting someone to look at your code, which I think is where code reviews come from. But the other side of it is that if I'm going to ask you to come over and look at something that you have no idea what it is, which is often like a good way of doing rubber ducking, I'll say like, hey, come over here and look at this. I know you have no, no idea what I'm doing, but let me try to explain it to you. And by the time I'm done explaining it to you, I know the solution. Yes. Just by walking it through differently because you have to think about it from like someone's, someone's mind who doesn't, you have to think about it in a way trying to explain it to someone who has no idea what you're coding which sometimes people take that to the extreme, like actually talk to rubber duck, like get out of here. I don't need to talk to rubber duck. Like, <laughs> You just need to like quickly talk about something in front of the code or while you're at lunch, you're just like, oh man, I'm working on this really annoying problem where I'm doing this. 
And then a lot of the patterns that people use to code different things, a lot of the experiences people have had are cross useful. So like somebody might have built something in the past that has nothing to do with what you're doing, but you know, it, it involves something that's similar or has some kind of aspect of it that's the same. You know, like a like a good example, specific example would be say you're working on Redux and you're dealing with Redux middleware and you know, someone who doesn't even know Redux could have worked on Express middleware and understands how middleware works in the first place and then understands that concept of how middleware feeds into the next middleware, which feeds into the next middleware, whatever. And the two of you together can solve a problem that requires multiple steps of middleware that you, the one person may not even know how Redux works, but they understand how middleware works. So that kind of thing can be helpful if it's a similar kind of concept. Yes, that's that's a perfect example of how that would use, how that would work. Also, if you have a person who knows Java and you're trying to figure out TypeScript, you just have them come over and be like, hey, how do you do this type thing? Mm. And they don't even have to know TypeScript and they'll be able to figure it out for you. I've been writing a lot of Java lately. That's good. You should help all your uh, front-end friends who are writing TypeScript. Oof, man. You should, you should help them out with, you'd be like, so this is an interface. No, not that kind of Java. Just like this is this is static, this yeah. is public, and this that is private, and that's Java. Hooray! <laughs> not if you get into like iterable custom types and you know public things static, that void, things trust. that return key values of multi-dimensional fields and oh, matrices. No, just like like a like a hash map of string to oh. custom object or crap like oh. that, where you're like chaining potentially types between different events and then you're going through different funnels of different things and then oh. the type keeps changing and you have to keep strongly typing it and writing custom classes and interfaces to do certain things oh. and that kind of stuff is fun. That's really good. That sounds like a lot of fun. I mean, to find fun. It's fun. It's different. It's, it's fun. That, it's, it's different than just writing React. I think yeah. that a lot of times developers, this is such, such a tangent, but developers are the kind of weirdos where just tackling something different in and of itself is fun, regardless of if it's something good or bad. Mm-hmm. Oh, this Webpack thing doesn't work? That's fun. Oh, man, I hate Webpack stuff. 20 hours later. I still hate Webpack oh, stuff. Oh, this Webpack thing is different. This is not fun. I mean, it, it definitely works, but it's just not, uh, not my favorite thing in the world. It can be hard. It can be if very hard. If you are anywhere outside the kind of guidelines or the the rails of kind of this narrow strip of area where webpack is manageable then you're good like if you're between the lines if you're coloring between the lines and webpack you're you're usually all good you mm -hmm. usually have some resources but the second that you even stray just a tiny little bit out here right like like say your image paths are just like different from what webpack expects that's a pain in the ass to fix. Well, you got to, and a lot of times, like with Caspi, you got to rewrite the You got to rewrite the whole thing. the entire. You got to rewrite your own plugin to overwrite yeah. their plugin that's supposed to overwrite Webpack. Oh, man. It's just turtles on turtles, man. It's, it can be a mess real quick. We digress. Mm -hmm. We digress. Sometimes you might need, you know, pair programming to figure out some Webpack. Sometimes you got to know what to Google. Sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes. So. Sometimes. So we've covered the, the what, or the why, and, and sort of the when. Mm -hmm. We talked a little bit about the how, right? Like yeah. the the classic example is like, you know, me and Greg sitting next to each other at a computer, mm -hmm. each looking at a monitor. I like that you brought up that typically one person is quote unquote driving, where they're the ones who are typing everything, and they're the only ones that touches the keyboard. But I think 
the thing you said about the other person also having, say, like a laptop or something where they're Googling questions or, or looking up syntax or whatever, I think that is actually an also uh, a helpful model as well because somebody could be focused on typing something or you could both be looking up different things and you kind of yeah. cover more ground that way. So I think that that is a slight tweak to the classic paradigm of, of pair programming, but it is effective and helpful and something you might want to try. Yeah, I've been pair programming a bit the past two weeks, working on something really complicated that I can't really talk about, but it's super complicated and stuff that I like have knowledge of, but there's just very specific ways that it's implemented. And I've been pair programming with somebody at work where he'll he'll kind of like research something or be writing something or trying something and then I'm kind of researching something and then we keep just going back and forth like let's try this let's try that let's try this let's try that it's been working very effectively yeah but um yeah it's it's not like we're like doing the programming thing where like we only type for like a certain amount of time or like key types or whatever it's just like whoever can think of like how to make this thing work because the documentation is very obtuse mm uh, and there isn't really, it's a, there's not a lot of documentation online about how it even works. Not a lot of people are actually using this particular technology. And it's just like, he'll like literally be looking at the source code of the Java libraries. Oh man. And like, re, like reverse engineering how he thinks it, should, it would work. And then I'm like, I'm doing this something and then I'm doing what he's doing. And then we're going back and forth. Like I'm looking at source code in IntelliJ because it does this crazy thing where it decompiles Java for you out of packages, out of jars. What? Yeah, it knows how to like read bytecode. <laughs> the first time you do it, it warns you. It's like, please don't use this to steal other people's technology. Are like, you sure you want to do this? Yeah, are you sure you want to do this? Because you know now you can look at any Java and any uh, decompile anything. Because a couple of can... very big companies have been suing each other in court over this exact thing that you were about to do. Are you yeah. sure you want to continue? Yeah, click, click yes. And IntelliJ <laughs> is really good at it because it actually like knows based on this the Java docs what the variable names are. So like it does this thing where like. It it know because typically if you decompile bytecode you don't remember what, you don't know what the variable names are unless it like saves it in the bytecode somewhere I don't know and I don't build bytecode compilers but it doesn't like it's almost like it minifies it it removes the variable names I think potentially I don't know for sure don't quote me on that but it knows the, how to like recompute those variable names based on the docs or some they do something where they like literally decompile the source code oh that's fun of it like it's actually the source code of proprietary code is it faster that way. Uh, it's super freaking fast. You click on a thing and it's like, boom, there's the decompile code. That's got to be part of why they do it. They do it because, I mean, IntelliJ is by far the best, except for maybe like some people love Eclipse, but IntelliJ is by far the best Java editor that exists. It's amazing for Java. Pretty good for everything else, but it's amazing for Java. It's pretty good for PHP also. But it's amazing for Java. Sounds about Ridiculously right. Ridiculously good. Sounds about right. So I don't know. We've been doing a lot of pair programming and we were literally talking about this at lunch today about how that's like a useful paradigm. But then you you brought up this topic. I didn't bring it up. But uh, it's just a quinky dink. Do you feel like you are going faster by pair programming? Oh, yeah. yeah. You're covering more ground? Yeah. If either of us were working on this separately, it would probably take 1.5 to 2 times longer. It's just the the I, the concept of having two people that are really smart looking at the same thing really helps. Yes. Like really helps. Uh, especially because he has a computer science background uh, and I have like a lot of experience working with things and, like and this. You do, you do not? I do not have a computer science background. You do background. not have a, a PhD in computer science? I do not have an undergrad in computer science. I have an undergrad in art. You, you do not have... 
several honorary PhD degrees in the science of computers? No, I don't. What? Yeah, I know. 12 years of experience in Amazing. React to have a job. 15 um, years experience. 15 years experience with... GraphQL. GraphQL. Uh, but I do have, you know, eight years of experience building things for professional clients. And I have a lot of domain experience. And I am pretty good at coding. I just don't have a degree. Um, so I don't know. The two of us work really well together because I could think of interesting solutions and... Uh, I kind of have like a my bearings on what needs to get built. And then he kind of has a lot of computer science background. He knows all the algorithms, right? Oh, yeah. He was talking it's about like bloom filters earlier today. Off the top of his head. Right? Off the top of his head. And I was like, oh, yeah. Cool. Cool. Yeah. Let's do those. Is, is hot dog. Is not hot dog. Yeah. So it's it's a pretty good it's a pretty good uh, situation. I mean, yeah. Now, do you have a scheduled time? To do this, how do you how do you work this out with another person? Because I, I know a lot of times people feel weird about asking other people to pair program with them, especially with somebody they don't know that well. Yeah. Uh, like if you're at a company or if you have multiple people on your team. Um, if you are asking someone from another team, maybe to help you with something, uh, it can be a little bit awkward at first because you don't really know how to ask or if it's going to take up their time. How how do you how do you approach that? I think it, a lot of it depends on the culture of the team that you're working for because the culture there was already cooperative. So it wasn't like it was naturally. It's like, let's just sit down and look at it later. But then getting like actual time dedicated because he has a different work stream, like he's a technically a web developer. Um, so he's kind of focused on building stuff for web. So then he would kind of work on that in the morning, work on web, finish all his stuff, and then help me. And then in the whole time in the morning, I'd be working on trying to solve stuff myself and maybe ping him here and there with a question, like if there was something really weird that we were working on, some weird problem I came across. Um, the technology I'm working on is just really, really, really weird. It's different. It's very different than uh, what I'm used to. From the but, way that you described it, just off the top of my head, without any prior knowledge of what you're actually talking about, is this by chance a Google API? Oh, yes. Oh, <laughs> you know how yes. I figured that out is that Every single Google that that description that you gave of of trying to figure out the documentation, not knowing mm -hmm. anything, and all that is is a pretty apt description of a lot of Google APIs I've worked with in the past. So yeah, I think <laughs> it's kind of sad that that still is the case. For I think the a lot of only things. API that's actually documented extremely well is Maps, but that's yes. because that's their number one money maker. They yes, make so absolutely. much money off Maps. Oh, it's so much. If you do anything that's non-trivial with maps or any large amount of volume to it, you're paying for an enterprise like key, access key, enterprise yep. account, and it's very expensive. I would imagine the second most expensive APIs they have are probably some of like the more AI-focused things, like NLP mm, yeah. and things like that. And I mean, not not including like Compute Engine, just like there is purely APIs. Um, they have a lot of them, a lot of APIs. Yes, they do. Places APIs, which is part of Maps. I mean, a lot of them are umbrellaed under Maps, but they do have quite a lot of APIs that they make that they do a lot of work with. But it just depends. It varies on the team and how new the product is, whether or not, and how used it is, whether or not it's really well documented. But I've often found, I think Firebase was documented pretty well, or at least there's enough community around it to have docs that make a lot of sense. Right. So it's pretty pretty decently documented. App Engine is fairly well documented. Things like um, their their cloud data store, their database. I forgot what they call it now, but they have like a database that's kind of like um, Amazon's, um, what is it called? It starts with the D. 
I don't know. Amazon's like NoSQL type database. Dynamo? Dynamo, yes. Yeah, it's kind of like Dynamo. That one is used to be like very obtusely documented. The thing about Google is that they, they make a lot of products for themselves that work with their huge data sets. And then they try to, or they end up realizing that it has a lot of use. So then they make versions of it that work well with varying sized apps and then sell to people. So the documentation, I think, is they try to do a good job of documenting things. But the way that I summarized it after doing a lot of work with this particular set of APIs is that they document it like they know, like they know what they're talking about versus documenting it like someone is coming to it and has no idea yes. how it works. Yes. So it's it, the documentation is there, but it's not written for the layman. It's written for someone who really knows that particular technology. I guess maybe in, in structure, institutionally, they only hire people that know those technologies or know how to work within those kind of systems really well. So if it's like a, you know, like a maps-based product that they're just going to assume that you know how like lat longs work and how bounding boxes work with zips. I don't know. But it's like they expect you to have some kind of like implicit domain knowledge about how things work versus, you know, explaining it from the ground up like it's something that no one's ever worked with. Yeah, that might that might be the case. But the problem is that documentation is designed specifically to assist the person who doesn't know what they're doing. Yeah, well, there's different kinds of documentation. There's reference documentation, which... Java has a lot of, there's a lot of Java docs that are written around classes that specifically document how classes work, which is good. Um, but that's almost the same thing as looking at the source code and reading the, it is literally looking at the source code and reading the comments above each method. Yeah, it's almost trivia, right? It's kind of, and it, there's a little bit of like, you can kind of infer how something works. And IntelliJ does like a really good job, like kind of like the IntelliSense and VS Code or actual Visual Studio where... When you see like this class dot, it'll know all the it'll methods. It'll figure out the rest of, yeah. But it doesn't just do it like like VS Code does with JavaScript by using TypeScript inference and all that kind of stuff. It actually reads the Java docs for those libraries you're importing because they're all included. Uh, the typings, I guess, the equivalent, the TypeScript typings is included in the jars for all the packages you're installing. Right, so it's there as part of the package so they yeah. can reference it. Basic, I think so. I mean, don't quote me. I, don't, I mean, that makes sense. I well, think you it's are, there. You are a doctor of... You know, Java computer sciences. So we all know that. I mean, what I you did. Is, the classes that I did take in computer science were all in Java and C. So, well, that's all they taught back then. Well, it's also, well, I was listening to ATP. They were talking about what the best language to learn programming is Python. And they were saying that it's probably not Java, <laughs> no, even though that's no, what everybody no. teaches. And, and like, there's been a few articles recently that were saying that like OOP is like one of the reasons why programming. Like was was not nearly flailing, but they were saying like it kind of took programming in a wrong direction for a little while. Oh, like it's a really good paradigm, but for certain things. But for teaching fundamentals and basics, maybe not the best thing. Maybe not, but not even necessarily that. Like scripting is taking over like in a big way, and it's creating a lot of velocity around building things. But it is the wild west. You look at Node, wild west. It's not really typed unless you had TypeScript, but it's. Not really typed, but then look at the amount of things that people build with Node. It's insane. Yes. It's creating like a huge uh, democracy around building things versus like things like Java are very hard to learn. You have to learn these patterns. They're all overly typed. Everyone's got to fit in the same typed. box in order to build anything. Oh man, the amount of typing you do in Java is insane. You have to like, you know how like in TypeScript you can do like TypeScript any? Yes. There's an equivalent to that. It's called a generic. There's an equivalent in that in Java, but 
you when you return values from things, you have to define the generics. So like a lot of the library, as far as I know, it's not really in any of them. Well, it's not. <laughs> But they'll they'll write it like you can write methods where T is like any equivalent to it's a generic symbol. You can do that, but then when you actually implement an instance of that method, you can't just do T. You have to like define it. So it's specifically for oh, interfaces to understand that it can gotcha. be a generic. Uh, and it'll but type it doesn't infer. just it doesn't just willy nilly let you pass anything. I don't in. think. Gotcha. Don't quote me, but I don't think so. No, you that have sounds to right. Define it. Sounds right. So, I don't know. Just we like, are going to quote. Everyone's going to hate you. Yeah, totally. Hacker uh, Gorski on Twitter. I've only been, you know, writing with Java for a little bit, but it all comes back to me. And like, I learned, I learned on Java, I learned on OOP and I learned all these concepts and I don't know. And then I did a whole crap load of scripting for a long time, but I did PHP for a long time there in the previous eight years I've been a developer. So, and that's not as strongly typed, but like there's typings and interfaces and a lot of, not like typings, like TypeScript typings, but there's things are typed and there's more, going on there. Yeah, um, I, I guess that the difference with, with PHP is that PHP is does like one thing really well and it doesn't handle yeah. maybe as many cases as it doesn't Java really does. handle scripting like CLIs as no, well. You no, can run CLIs from PHP. Um but it's not like optimized for that. So it, it's almost okay because if you're writing PHP you're kind of in the PHP box anyway. Mm-hmm. Even if the language itself is not forcing you there. So it's kind of a little bit different. Yeah, PHP is also one of those things where it has like, like it has a scripting, le- there's like a legacy of scripting mm. where there's a lot of methods in PHP that are, you know, like low level functions that really should be classes that aren't. And then there's things like uh, Symphony and Laravel and all these things where it's more verb, it's like more class-based, interface-based, dependency injection-based. And that stuff is like, I honestly feel like Laravel and Symphony is like the perfect amount of typing and the perfect amount of interfacing. When you're working with PHP and you're working on like a Laravel app, it's actually quite a joy to use it because there is types, there is, you know, importing, there's packages, there's all these things built into it, but it's like just the right amount to where you're not like, why the heck am I doing this typing where, you know, if I return like a an array from something, I have to. I don't have to type specifically what's in the array. I don't have to like check for it. You still have to type. Well, when you don't type things, you have to type check. But you in your actual code, you have to say like if this is this kind of thing or whatever. But it's not like for literally every single value you define and every single thing you return and every time you transfer an object between two classes, you have to define its types for every field. Mm. And then you have to do things like. You know, maybe if you're ingesting JSON into Java, you have to create a POJO and then marshal it using Jackson or JSON, which is Google's JSON library. It's like a or it's like a higher level version of Jackson, which is a serializer. You have to basically deserialize JSON into a POJO, which is an actual typed object, in order to use it in Java. Whereas, like with PHP, you could just read. You can just read you can JSON. Read JSON, and you can do it in JavaScript too. I don't know. Uh, Java's weird. It's it's like it it makes sense. It's weird because it does all it's the different. things that it's supposed to do. It's different. It's very different. And then you have like lambdas weren't added to Java until like Java eight or nine. I think it was eight. And like you you have a because kind of like you know how Python's lambdas aren't that easy to understand either. No. Whereas like JavaScript's lambdas make perfect sense. It's an arrow function. Yes. Or a function. Um, well, an inline one would be a would be an arrow function. But like 
it makes a whole lot of sense the way that they're written because there's not a lot of syntactical sugar. But then on on like Python, you have to do lambda colon and then some stuff. Yes. And then in Java, you I, I haven't really had a chance where I've like used lambdas because they're kind of like they're like they're like a almost like a shortcut when you could really just write a function that accepts the right things and returns the right things to put them on an interface. Or like yes, because Java is built that way. Because Java is built that way. But there is generic. There is there is lambdas when you need them. Um, a lot of like MapReduce or type like uh, data sciencey stuff uses lambdas in Java. But I don't know. Point is, it's it's just a complicated uh, language if you don't know it. If you work in Java every day, it's probably probably like what the heck are you talking about? This thing's amazing because I do enjoy writing things in Java. It's not like the my least favorite language by any means. It's your favorite language? Not really. I would say it's your favorite language. No, <laughs> I just think that it uh, it it makes sense when you understand it, and it it because for the same reasons that you like TypeScript, Java will alleviate a lot of bugs for you. Yes, because the minute it compiles, it'll tell you immediately that something's not going to work because yes. it knows. And then with IntelliJ. Without even wiring up TypeScript or doing anything, it'll just tell you when something isn't going to work. It's it like just knows. It's just IntelliJ. I think is one of the reasons why I think Java is fun to work on, because it is freaking really good. It's yes. like running a JVM in the background to analyze your code to like figure out if something's going to have a runtime error. It does like so many freaking things that it's, are cool. It's like not even. It's not just linting it. It's actually running your program. I don't know if it goes that. I want to go call me on that. I don't know if it does that, but yeah, I mean that's essentially, essentially what it is. It's actually running the thing. It's actually giving you uh, like runtime errors. Not like as much right? as if you actually ran it, but it, it it's really really good at realizing common mistakes that lead to runtime errors. I guess that's a better way to like put not it. just like linting type of stuff. Not either, like this but is like, a string, and uh, you but like pin. patterns. Right, yeah, it can figure recognize, out patterns. It'll yeah, recognize that's patterns crazy. that will lead to that's amazing. The fact that yeah. code for computers that are really dumb can actually figure out, hey, this thing that you're about to write, don't write that. Yeah, IntelliJ is also really good because it will tell you like this is duplicate code or this could be, you know, it'll allow you to select a bit of code and extract it to a method on your class. It'll like allow you to wrap things with try catch, which you can do with JavaScript too. Like it has some of that stuff available for PHP and JavaScript, but it's like really good at realizing things about Java that it knows just because of the fact that it's like written in Java. I don't know. And it understands the JVM compiler like really well. It's a very, very well built editor yes. for writing Java. It is, is it plugged into the Java ecosystem kind of in the yeah. same way that VS Code is plugged into the JavaScript ecosystem? Yeah, I would say that, jo that VS Code is probably plugged into the JavaScript ecosystem more than like say WebStorm is. Yes. But... I personally like WebStorm. WebStorm's written in Java as well, right? They're all written in this, they're all written in Kotlin. They're all written in the same thing. Oh, okay. Basically, the way that IntelliJ products work, since it's turning into like a little lecture about them, but the way that they work is that there's the core editor, which is essentially what all of them have in common. PyCharm, Java, uh, or IntelliJ, WebStorm, PHP Storm. They all have the core editor in common. And then there's packages for each language. Mm, so it's like a like the frame of the actual editor itself, right? Because yeah. like all the different versions, if you open them up and look at them, they all kind of look the same. They look similar, but there's there's some differences. There are like, some little things that are, are different, but in terms of like the layout of like your file tree is over here, your mm. terminal's over here, your window's over here. Yeah, they all have a terminal. They, they all, all have all legit terminals. They're not like Sublime where you don't have a real terminal. They're like real, real stuff. Yes. Um, but then the differences is that 
PyCharm is essentially the core editor plus the Python language. Yes. PHP Storm is the core editor plus the PHP language and WebStorm, which is kind of confusing. Oh. So if you're going to be doing web development by PHP Storm, not WebStorm. If you're and doing web development in 2008 or 9, go no, ahead. There's still, no, there's still... <laughs> There's if you're a WordPress a, developer in 2019 by PHP Storm, you're good. Yeah, you could you can use it for WordPress. You can use it for. Uh, I always, always had people who were only WebStorm people. Like, there's a particular developer I'm thinking of right now who she would write code for PHP with no syntax highlighting, highlighting in WebStorm because that's what she had. So whenever she needed to work on a project that was PHP, like any Laravel app, any October CMS, any Craft CMS, any things that are like legitimately decent frameworks, she would have no highlighting because she wouldn't have those packages in WebStorm, but she'd write it anyways with all white text. How? Because she didn't do that much work in the PHP side. Oh she would goodness. just go in there, fix something and get out. But it's like if you had just bought PHP Storm, you'd have everything that WebStorm has plus PHP. Interesting. But you don't have, like if you buy PHP Storm, you don't have PyCharm, so you can't write Python. Mm. So then you get to IntelliJ Ultimate and it just which has everything, is, right? Which is essentially the core editor with all of those packages. So you can do all the Pythons. All, all Python, the PHPs, C++, C Sharp, C++. Ruby, Ruby. Ruby, because there's Ruby Mine, yeah. Ruby. Um, is, there an, is there one for R? There's a data science-y one, I think. I don't know what it's called. Like like uh, ReSharper? ReShaper? Uh, ReSharper, I think, is a C Sharp thing. Oh, okay. But yeah, there's and there's also Data Grip, which is specifically the database portions, which is actually pretty good. The database portions of IntelliJ, like um, just straight inside of IntelliJ, you can connect to like a Postgres database and see all the tables and query data directly in it. Oh, that's fun. Yeah, and you can do it in IntelliJ. You can do it in IntelliJ. You can do. I think most of the better ones have that have the Data Grip equivalent built in, like PyCharm, PHP Storm. I don't know if WebStorm does, but. All the ones that deal with backend languages, I think, have DataGrip built in. That would make sense. Yeah, and then or you can just download DataGrip separately, and then have like a dedicated, uh, like, editor for databases. It can connect to like remote databases. It can connect to MySQL, Postgres, Mongo, all of them. Yes, those are features I'm starting to see come up in other editors as well. That's something that VS Code's added recently. And yeah. they've done a pretty good job of, of integrating a limited set of functionality into the You don't the really need a lot of editor. You don't really need a lot of database stuff to make it useful. No, you really don't. You just need to be able to see the tables, see the structure. You don't really even need to be able to edit the structure. Which, no, you just need you to can. see it. You just need to be able to see it, read yeah. it. Yeah. And you should be able to run a query and get data back. That's really That's it. That's really it. And the other thing that's crazy about IntelliJ is you can actually change database queries directly from in the editor. What? If you wanted to. I mean, I always think twice before I change database schemas, but whatever, to each their own. Bringing this all the way back to pair programming. Yeah. One of the other kind of side effects of pair programming is that you can actually see how other people program. Imagine that. Yeah. Right? So I don't think I would have any exposure to any of the beans products unless I had sat next to you and watched you program or sat next to other people and watched them program on WebStorm or or sat next to people and watched them program in Smoltron or, or whatnot. And so you Smoltron kind of get, you get experience in other people's workflows. Mm. And like kind of we talked about last week, you kind of now have other things to try, right? You probably would not on your own volition have tried Visual Studio Code for anything unless someone unless you had seen someone else use it, unless you had sat no, next to someone else. Well, maybe, but <clears throat> I always download whatever... 
scratch paddy type editor people make. So I think I had downloaded VS Code. But part of it was... year before you even showed it to me. Well, I'll, what and I'm saying I, like, is that... immediately if, put if, it back on the shelf. If enough people... If there wasn't kind of a critical mass of people all around you that were using it... Yeah, I probably wouldn't have probably used wouldn't it have over used it VS... Or over Sublime, which I now, I now think has been uh, quite a lot of time that I haven't been using the best editor in the world. Sublime is amazing. It's pretty good. You just I actually, have to do a lot of things yourself. But. I'm still in the process. I actually just downloaded it on my work computer, and I was messing around with it today. Uh, apparently, Sublime Linter uh, has gone through, let's say, some changes since the last time I downloaded this editor. There's no plugins anymore, apparently. Did you know this? Uh, they're still in the package they're control. They're still in but... the package control, but you don't use them, and you wouldn't know that unless you read the documentation of the correct version of Sublime Linter that you install in your you have to show me that because I just installed I the one that. that was in the package control. I'll show you that. I, am at the, I thought it was the old way. I am at the point where the Sublime Linter package cannot figure out how to lint the different files. Like you can pass it different configurations for how you want it to lint certain files, certain uh, language types and whatnot. And I'm trying to get it so that it's consistent across all files. Like the... Um, instead of just doing a squiggly underline because their squiggly underlines are really small and they're hard to see, do the whole thing where it like highlights the whole text. And it'll do that in JSON files. It'll do that in a JS file. It does not do it in a JSX file and it does not do it in a TSX file. Mm. Are you talking about like if there's an error on the line, it'll underline the whole line? No, I'm saying that I'm trying to configure it to where it does... Uh, a, a specific, uh, you can configure the the marker in the gutter to have it be like an X or like an error or whatever. And you can have it to where wherever that error, whatever that error is. Normally, you know, there's like underline under like this variable is not, is defined but never used or something like that. Um, the sublime linter, what was really nice about it is that you can have it highlight the whole word instead of just doing underline hmm. or do an out, what's called an outline where it, it, it paints a border like around a the whole word, right? And I'm trying to configure that, and I'm having a lot of problems with it. So I don't even think I configured the linter on mine because I, I don't use the editor for that kind of stuff. Like if I'm typically if I'm using Sublime for something, it's because I, I already know kind of what I'm like, what I'm writing. Like I don't really need linting. Yeah, I would so just use websites. I'm, I'm using it, or I'm giving a spin on a TypeScript. Proof of concept for an existing React app, or no, an existing, yeah, an existing React app, mm. uh, and one. It took me forever to find a color scheme that worked for me because the one that I wanted wasn't there. I got so one. I, to, I, I love. I love the one I have. I'd figure it out because um, they don't have 1984, which is a great one. They don't one. have 1984. They don't have Synthwave. They don't have Outrun. Yeah, they, they don't have any of the cool ones that are Horizon, Horizon City, City Lights. Any of those. Any of the all the ones, ones that are yeah, like neon. I almost made you really mad and just stuck with uh, the greatest of all time, Monokai. Oh, I hate Monokai. <laughs> the only reason didn't. why I hate Monokai is it's the default color scheme on Sublime. And I used it for like three years. The brown is terrible. I used the good one for three years. The brown is terrible. So what you do is that you find a Monokai that has either a pure black background or they have tiny little variations. There's one that's like kind of more of a purple hue. So it's not like super hard contrast on the edges. And then there's one that is uh, all the the colors, so like the pink, the green, and the blue are one shade darker so that you don't have as hard a contrast. So there's 
two or three different ones I switch between depending on what's going on. But I almost went with that. I didn't. I went with a different one that's kind of more of a blue, but still has a good good punch contrast. Anyway, it's a very important topic. I'm I was trying. Intently. I was trying it out. Um, it's like you were talking about before. It feels like going home, mm-hmm. but it feels like going home after you've been driving like maybe a been away in college, a Land Rover for a while, and the Land Rover went was to grad pretty good. School. Had to go find yourself, so you drove a Land Rover around the world. Yeah, in the eighty days, and grew a beard, and lived out of a van for a couple years, and came back, and now you got your Honda Civic back. And you're now like, you got your Honda Civic, and Honda Civic man. Your parents left your your room exactly the same. Yeah, pictures of you playing t-ball in fifth grade, and things like that. Yeah, it's kind of like that. Mm-hmm. Kind of like that. We all we all know that everyone's here to listen to us reminisce about old code editors, but going back to pair programming, yes, this one is one more how, thing about color schemes. Though. Yes, one more thing. I've I found on a backup of my old hard drive my color scheme for IntelliJ that I made myself. Is it glorious? It's the only color scheme that when I use it, I don't obsess over the color of the editor. Oh. It's freaking amazing. It's like blue with green neon. And then I removed like a lot of the stuff that IntelliJ does to like really intelligently highlight like very I think I told you last time, but like Really intelligent variable definitions, like where it's highlighting, like it tries too hard. It's over. Like it'll change the color of variables that get overwritten, it's too which eager. is good to know. But like, you know, it's too much to think about. It's too much to think about, That's and then not it creates what the this blob of for. colors. So I one one probably for like three days, I like sat down and created one from scratch, and it was the basis for like a lot of editors, a lot of things that I've used where I made it so that. Inside of the settings of IntelliJ, you have to set the language-specific overrides for the color scheme. So you set the language defaults. There's like an editor default, language defaults. When you set those two, every other editor for every other language inherits from language defaults. But then sometimes, depending on the theme that you started from, there'll be overrides or specific colors per language. Oh, man. That maybe are different or similar. Depends on like, uh, what I'm getting at is like if you created your theme from another theme... They might have changed the colors per language, like to be different colors, or never changed them because someone made those themes. So I went through to all for all the common languages, and I made them all the language defaults, and then set some color specific if I needed to, because uh, you can like always inherit like generic text from the language defaults, if, even for like some variable. Oh, you can inherit like specific specific things from that you can't well you you're can, not inheriting the entire theme from the language from no the, the you have report? you have to go to the color go to that theme and then make everything use apple use language defaults there's like a checkbox how many different things you have to set per language depends on the language but oh, like geez. javascript's like 30 things Jeez. so i went through and i did all that a long time ago where i did it per language and then i kind of neutralized the colors and I was like, I was like stressed for like the first few days of this new laptop because I was like, I don't have the same color scheme and I I didn't know where it was. So I went on the internet and I found specifically where in the hard drive backup it stores the themes and the settings. I also had custom key maps from when I had the work computer. You're insane key maps. They're not that insane. It was like Sublime and then I changed a couple things. It's like Sublime inherited and then changed a couple things. Anyways, I got all of that back and... Oh man, my life was back to normal. It was amazing. Your Honor, this is Exhibit 634 about why developers are insane. No, we it, hope that you find for the prosecution. No, I, I totally it's understand thing, where you're coming from. I've never had that much success with trying to roll my own. 
with the theme, even if I'm basing it off of something else, because I always get kind of too down in the weeds where I want to change every little thing, and then I end up with a mess. And yeah, so, I did that, and then and then I decided to come out of the weeds and then be simpler. Like I went through like seven iterations. I'm showing you the theme. I went through like seven iterations. It's very important. I went through like seven iterations of changing the theme, controlling the theme, like going too overboard with the colors until I got out of here backpack where I totally like got back to like exactly what I wanted. And if I could open my laptop, Jamie, can you put that on the screen? Let's see how long it takes for you to figure out how to put your screen on the Chromecast. Oh, I know how to do that. That's what I'm saying. Let this be a testament to all those of you who doubt the value of having a Chromecast in your life. Oh, yes, I recall this one. Yeah. I remember this one. And it's so great. Greg, this is how I can prove to you that I know you and we've worked together. I recognize your co the color editor of your scheme. Yeah. It's green and yellow and then looks it's same, amazing the same as it did i know but it's <laughs> perfect and every single time i use it i'm like oh mm. man this is this is the way to do it it's amazing it's amazing the links that developers will go to to satisfy our own tastes about things yeah oh hey look at that oh hey look at that there should be a shared desktop option oh there we go Oh, hey, look, spaces. Boom. Colors on my TV aren't that great. Yeah, your TV's pretty garbage. That's, that's you old. gotta get a new one. 1080p. So anyways, that was it. It's very, very... Oh, this is, this is sublime. Uh, not that, this. Oh, it's so good. It looks the same, but I, actually that was... I did not... I didn't make this theme. This what, is a uh, theme. What uh, UI theme are you using? Is that SETI? That's not SETI. I don't know. A it's, lot of the uh, UI themes look very similar. Just a UI. Uh, it's IU Dark. Ah, uh, okay. I have the IU package, but I couldn't find this one. This one looks good. I might try this out. But this, the theme is not IU. It's a... Uh... The color scheme is something else. So Sublime does a very specific thing where they separate the theme of the editor and the color scheme of the editor. Color scheme can be thought of as just the part that does the syntax highlighting for the actual code that you are writing. Oh, it's Chevalru IU. So it's designed so that the background matches. Let's close. But it's a different color. It's a different close. select. This is one thing with me is that I got to have everything, the backgrounds of everything be the same color. It's got to be the same color or else it just drives me nuts. See, you're, you've got craziness too. I've got craziness too. Again, I'm not... We are putting ourselves at the, at the mercy of the court. We are admitting our OCDness about certain things. Uh, I've landed on something that's a little bit more blue... Um, but has kind of the, the lasery colors in the syntax highlighting. And then uh, Sublime Text apparently has this thing now where the themes, the frame that goes around, have uh, what's called an adaptive option. What? Where it what will, version of Sublime are you? I've never seen any of these settings. I'm on three. So, so one of the default themes that comes with is called adaptive. And adaptive, what it does is it actually changes itself based on the color scheme that you choose inside the editor. They're not drastic changes. But it'll kind of try to match closer. Depending yeah, like the on background what you have. color will make the background, background color. color. So if you have like a light color scheme, which I don't know why you'd ever do that. Yeah, I don't know. If why. you have a light, IU one, light does look really good. It almost entices me. Can't do it. I know. I can't, do I it. can't. But it almost entices me to do can't, it. I can't do it. It reminds me of the days of using um, Smoltron. 
No. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Smalltron had it. No. Like what's no, that one no that I just? No. The one that I just mentioned. Um, Textmate. I was talking about Java editors. PHP Storm. No. 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 Eclipse. Eclipse. It reminds me because Eclipse by default is like white. Yes. Yeah. Go I on. have a coworker that uses it. There's a default he uses one. Uses it called, in 2019. Yes. 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 It's okay though because he's trying to learn GraphQL. So he's 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 trying. Baby steps. Baby steps. There's one called Adaptive. Mm-hmm. And adaptive is you can write the theme to where it will try to figure out a shade that's close or, or complementary based on what the color scheme is. Mm-hmm. So there have been a couple of people who've written Sublime themes. Yeah, I think I was one of those. Maybe. These adaptive colors. Yeah. And I think the two that I have that I've been flipping back and forth is there's one called Fits, F-I-T-S, and the other one called Outlined. And both of them basically try to adapt the outside frame, the command palette, the bottom bar, all that stuff to what you have in the middle. I think I'm running outlined right now because it, it gets the background color as close, closer to the theme that I'm using. Uh, but that's pretty neat. That's actually yeah. something that is, if you are a front-end developer, if you're a CSS person, that's the kind of thing that you should be incorporating into your design libraries or your design language because... Anytime you have something like a dark button, like a, a button, like a navy blue button, that text always has to be white, right? Anytime you have a white button, that text always has to be something darker than white. And so there are mathematical formulas that you can write that will automatically adapt these colors to each other. Hmm. This saves you time. I did know this, but that is interesting. Yes. I think the same developer that you were talking about before, who she was running WebStorm, actually showed me some technology on how to developer. do this with uh, SAS mixins. Mm-hmm. Where you can say, yeah, there's, I know there's lighten and darken, but there's ones that are like complement. Yeah, you can do that. So you can actually do it mathematically with hex codes. So if you want to be precise about it, oh yeah, you should listen to the base CSS podcast about about bit shifting. Bait, base, base, base CSS. CSS, base CSS podcast. They <laughs> Those talk. are two different things. I know. I'm tired. There is a base CSS too. There's a literally anything <laughs> that can CSS. be named has been named. Oh man! No, but the base CS podcast they talked about one of the the first season was all about bits, bytes, whatever, and then going all the way up to ASCII codes, and they covered um, why like binary and hex, well, why hex is used for colors. There's two hex characters. One one more digit, options per digit can represent yeah. exactly 255. Yes, that's why. That's why they do it. FF is 255. That's why they do it. That's why they do it. People are smarter than us. I've already come up with all this. Yeah. It's kind of why I'm just like, I'm not a particularly groundbreaking developer. I enjoy doing this stuff and I have fun doing it. And I feel like I've, I've learned a lot, but I'm not coming up with ways of encoding colors into my CSS that everyone can use and will stand the test of time. So No, but very few people are. Yeah, that's true. We're kind of, I feel like we're kind of past the time where... Peak developer? Maybe not peak, <laughs> but we're in the middle age. We're in the Middle Ages where there's enough stuff that has matured to where it allows steady state growth to occur. But mm-hmm. it, but that people think that that stage means that you're not going to try new things anymore. And I don't think that's the case. That's that's the end stages, right? That's yeah. uh, that's like, uh, you know, what Barnes & Noble in 2019. Yeah. Right. You're kind of no longer at the peak of what you're doing in your life. Yeah. So, that's a, that, that's a, you know, thing. one other thing about uh, pair programming, bring it back to that. Yes, let's go back. Since we're very, very in the deep, I, I assure you that, you know, color schemes matter and how each person's color schemes work is, uh, is, is a thing. 
But um, one of the things that was really interesting was he was trying to use my keyboard, and I have the Vortex Race. Oh, no. He does not like it. He can't. He's it's like, a layout, though, right? Yeah, I don't, I don't like it. I can't type with it. Do you want to try that one? I mean, maybe. Do you want to just... Hold on a sec. Well, but you need the keyboard. How are you going to be keyboarding? Oh, you mean like here? I, can't, I don't get to take it with me. Oh, I thought you were implying I could take it with me. It's too loud. We were arguing about this over the text messages. Those are the Alia silent switches. Yeah, and the Those thing are- I'm trying to say is the switch is silent, but the key bottoms out. So it's just as loud as a non-silent key. Doesn't matter. This is annoying to my neighbors that I'm working with. He's getting something else. Wait, you bought another keyboard? Ooh, that was loud. What is this? I have not seen this. No, I haven't. I have not seen that. Everything you're doing is making so much noise. What is this? Oh. So what Greg is typing on right now and marveling at is a keyboard that I've been using at work for the last... Take it home every day. No, not every day, just today. I was going to swap out the keycaps. With what? You did it. You broke it. Ruin the audio. It's all your so fault. So Greg is now typing on a. Varmello. Oh, you have to use the arrow keys. Oh no, those are extra arrow keys. Those are extra arrow keys. Greg Oof. is typing on a Varmillo VA68M V2 Mac Edition. This, this is, is pretty nice a keyboard that comes with Getteron Silent Black switches. Uh, I have swapped out the keycaps for a set that comes in what's called the XDA profile which is kind of a wider, flatter top. It is a very nice keyboard. It's a solid piece of aluminum. When did you get this? I've never I seen this. I got that around when... So you remember when I had pre-ordered the, the new Vortex, uh, like Tab 75? Yeah. And uh, they kept delaying it. Yeah. Uh, I was fed up with waiting. So I was cruising mechanicalkeyboards.com one day and they had a returned one of this. They're selling it for cheaper than that board normally goes for. So I impulse bought it right away because it had get on silent blocks and that was the switch I wanted. And so I've been using that. That has been working fabulously. I like that. For me at work. Very heavy, but I like it's it. It's very heavy. It's been working really well. The, the thing that I've been trying with this other keyboard that Greg is looking at it is slightly narrower. It still retains a lot of functionality. So I don't like this. This is why I don't like the Vortex. Yes, that's why I figured. But I've been kind of test driving it here at home. And I think it's been working okay. The other thing too, I think the Vermillo has, um, they usually put like a piece of foam inside of it. To help dampen some of the noise. Also, this is a very thick piece of aluminum. That's going to soak up a lot, of, a lot of the noise. Whereas this other one is kind of a plastic case. I have a lot of keyboards, folks. Greg is looking at them. He's marveling. He's wishing he had as many keyboards as me. Um, um the- I the thing I did is <laughs> I'm I think I'm gonna get rid of the vortex. I don't know how. I haven't thought about that yet. But I did order uh, a Varmillo um TKL. The, the 10 keyless though, yeah. Yeah. And it's gonna come like never because it's silent blacks and it's like back ordered till next month. Silent blacks are very difficult to find. Yeah, well, in, in either the Gateron or the Cherry. Varieties. I think I'm just gonna. I think I just 
was going to do it and then wait. What is this thing called? It's the Varmillo VA68M. Varmillo VA68M. M. There's a lot of typing. Greg, it's USB-C. How do you feel about that? Wow, that is expensive. I got oh, the one that was... Oh, my God. I got... It said that it was returned. So it was a little bit that cheaper. That is the most expensive keyboard I've ever seen. It was a little bit cheaper, but when I got it, uh, box was sealed when I received it. And it just had a little post-it on top that said uh, returned. And I mean, it seems I like you won. paid like, I think, 20 or 30% cheaper than the list price. But it's been pretty fantastic. Ooh, that is expensive. Fantastic. The layout has worked really well for me. The so silent the full blacks, nav, full nav cluster, are hundred and ninety nine dollars. Yeah, I didn't pay hundred. I like. I don't know why you didn't. Did you get the CMYK keys with it? No, that was not the one that that one did not have the silent blacks. Again, this was in their return section, so it wasn't like in part of the main. You got this one, the the white lead. Uh, is that the Mac edition? Yeah, yeah. I have the, the Mac different edition keycaps. Key yeah, I have them in a bag over there. If you want them, do you want it? Do you want to buy this keyboard for me? No. Why? Why are you trying to sell things? You use it, don't you? I do, but... What do you use instead? I would probably end up using this other one. So this is a, this is a kit sold by KBD fans. This is based on a DZ65 RGB PCB with the default plastic case. It's hot swap. So I had a set of the Alias 80 gram switches that I installed myself. I had this set of DSA keycaps that I just used to. Um, it has all the like different compatibility keys, so I can try out different key, try it out on different keyboards. And so I've been liking this one so far. So I think I'm going to get another set of keycaps to go with this, or I might just use these XDA ones on this because there's enough keys on that set to fit on here as well. And I think I'm going to take that one to work because I like the Alias switches better than the Silent Blacks. What are you going to do with this? Just nothing. I'm going to sell it to you. Clearly, Jeez. we figured. I'm glad we figured that out. Say, man, Greg, just. I'm not gonna buy everything that you have. Okay, you're just gonna buy the things that work for your life. This is why we are friends, Greg, because I know better than you do what you need in your life, and I bring you solutions. I bring you fixes, and that's what pair programming is all about. Way to bring it back. Way, way to, to bring it back. Way to bring it back. Greg, do you have a pick for us this week? Uh, the only thing I can think of off the top of my head is uh. I have to find the name of it. There's, there's basically, um, well, let me, let me use an easier one. Better touch tool for Mac. Yes. Pretty cool. Have you been playing around with it this week since we talked about it last week? Um, sort of. I like, I, I, I basically installed that thing carabiner or whatever that you had so that I could do a couple things that I basically mm -hmm. ended up disabling because remapping keys, like, isn't really that cool. You, it gets pretty complicated, doesn't it? Well, like once you install carabiner, it doesn't, it basically removes the OS's ability to control the keys. So you kind of have to take over all that control yourself and then you realize how much your OS actually does for you. Well, no, like all it really did is like the OS's switching of option and alt or whatever doesn't work anymore. Right, so you have to set it yourself. You have to, you have to set it in Carabiner and then uh, it ended up breaking my super key at first or something that I enabled broke my super key and I term, so I couldn't do control R for like the back tick search. Why do you need super key for control? 
is what it does, what it does by default. Control R will like do a fuzzy search. Yeah, but Control is not super. It, I don't know. That's that's how <laughs> iTerm does it. Okay, that it didn't work anymore, and then I had to remove that binding or whatever. <sighs> so that happened, um, and then I had to just like fix a bunch of stuff. But the thing that was pretty cool that um, is actually the reason why I was using Better Touch Tool more than just after I fixed the keys was whatever. But there's a Better Touch Tool complete um, re- like thing that takes over the touch bar on the Mac. Better Touch Tool is oh, the it's ability. Part of Better Touch Tool. Yeah. Oh. Better Touch Tool has the ability to like turn off the native um, touch bar, or you can leave it in place so that you can access it. But basically, there's you can either replace the whole thing or you can like leave it available. So there's a button that you can press. You can like and switch back. back and forth. You can switch back and forth. Okay. Essentially, you can create like a custom one and then switch back to the default one. But there's one that's like a complete touch bar replacement. Let me get the name of it. And it's pretty good. It's really, oh, it's called Golden Chaos. That's cute. Yeah. So have you been using this tool to, to... I don't really use the touch bar, but I much prefer Golden Chaos to what it did by default. Like it actually, like I don't like that the touch bar when I'm using the computer and I switch between apps, it switches to a touch bar specific to the app. Yeah, you don't like that. I don't like that because then it flickers in front of me and then I have to, and then I like see something move. It's distracting. I don't ever use the short, I'm not going to memorize for one. I don't really use the touch bar. And two, I'm not going to memorize an app specific set of tools on top of a touch bar. Plus you can't memorize anything on a touch bar. Sure. Yeah. But because I mean, you have to look at it to use it. So yeah, you kind of get used to it, but like this one has the ability to do dock badges where like, it dynamically resizes the amount of things that are on the touch bar. So you were showing me this before, and I think that is actually pretty clever. So it'll so. show you, like, on your touch bar, it'll show you whether or not you have a text notification, yes. a Slack notification, a Discord notification. Yes. Or if you had stuff like yeah. um, if you email. were monitoring your CPU temps or GPU temps or if you had, like, a network monitor on there or something. Stuff that you would typically put in your top bar on yeah. your actual screen. That seems like a logical clever way of doing that it's way better than what it does what the touch bar does by default it's like it's definitely a better use of it i guess for me i'm never looking down on my keyboard so i don't i don't know how much use i would get out of it but that does sound like better functionality well the the only thing that i wish that they would do on the macbook pro is put regular f keys back and get rid of the touch bar but if they're not going to do that then i would rather have something that's specific to the the way that I use the computer. And this is more the way that I think. Yes. So you hold down command and it's a task switcher. So like, it's kind of like hitting alt tab. Like, why would you do that? You could just hold alt tab and t- tab to things. So I don't know. Like, I don't really use it that much, but um, it's better, I think, than uh, what's there by default. And it like puts Spotify always on the screen. Like you can control what play pause and it shows you what track is playing. Oh, that's good. And has a lot of like integrations with things that you would typically use. And it, it doesn't change between apps. So it's always Slack or whatever. Sorry, it's always Spotify and it's always, always whatever. Whatever you, put in there. whatever you put in there. And then you hold down option and it switches to a different thing, control and command, and it will switch what it's doing. Like command will switch to the app switcher, which is typical because you do command tab. But it's like, I don't know. I don't really use it that much. But, you know, it has more useful stuff. Like there's a weather widget on it that you press and hold the weather widget and it shows you the weather for the next seven days. Yeah, that's clever. So it's like it's just got things that are actually more useful than what is there by default. And and the really cool thing is it doesn't like 
have to do anything really crazy to work. It just, whenever Better Touch Tool's on, it takes over. And if you run into a problem, you just close Better Touch Tool and it goes away. Oh, that's nice. So, and it comes right back when you turn it back on. Comes right back when you turn it back on. It like just it just takes over. And there's some settings where it's like preserve the original or overtake, and it overtakes. Sometimes it's annoying when you first boot up. It shows you the regular one, then Better Touch Tool comes in, and then it comes back. Does it interfere with the Touch ID at all? No, Touch ID is a hardware thing. You can't okay. change it. Interesting. Does it le- Does it give you access to the Escape key at all? Uh, it leaves it, but it doubles as a full screen icon. So you press and hold, and it's full screen, and then you press the full screen icon, and it's an Escape. Interesting. They Very they interesting. made sure they left that because I'm pretty sure the guy who made it is a developer. So probably uses Vim. It, probably. So he left that in place. A lot of people, that was one of the things that got me back into Carabiners. I was reading that article that I sent to you. Which one? We, the the you one about like four of them. <laughs> well, the one about like uh, optimizing your work, your your like every every spend a day, like a hour a week customizing. Yeah, you sent me workflow. like four of those articles. Well, because then I got in a little bit of a. <laughs> you went down the rabbit hole. Yeah, but now my computer is like so much more useful. Um, but anyways, people bind caps lock to escape s- to escape or ca- hold caps lock becomes cap lock caps lock. So I oh, enabled yeah, that yeah. with Carabiner. Um. So I have that, but I haven't remapped my brain to realize that caps lock is escape. So I just still use the escape. That's a tough one because I feel like I still use my caps lock. Like I know for a fact that anytime that I'm typing out the names of like actions in Redux or environment variables in a .n file, I'm hitting caps lock and I'm typing stuff. That's how I type those because those are capitalized, right? So my brain goes, okay, I know that the everything mm-hmm. I'm about to type is capitalized. I hit caps lock and go. Now, that's a very, very small percentage of time that I'm using it, but I feel like changing it is not as effective for me. Now, if you're a hardcore Vim user and you're in Vim all the time and you need to have that thing right there, mm-hmm. you need to have a button that you hit as often as escape right next to your home row, it makes perfect sense to do that. Go ahead and do that. Knock yourself yeah, out. I mean, if you're, if, you're, if you're actually using Vim on one of these new MacBooks, and you're using the escape on the touch bar, I don't know what you're doing. I don't know how you're getting by in life. Yeah. I really don't. I also tried the shift. It doubles as a paren, which seems like it'd be smart. It's I think insane. It, no, I think it is if you get used to it. But then I was like hitting shift to actually shift things. And then it would like do a, it would do a paren and then IntelliJ would complete it. And it was very annoying. So I turned uh, it off. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was yeah. more annoying. Unintended, um, unintended side effects of things. Yeah. Um, I don't know. So... That's, so, that's my pick, I guess. I've just been spending some time because I got the new Mac and I want to make it as, as useful and as personal as I can. And I think so far, <laughs> this is going to be a little bit crazy, but I'm actually quite happy with the computer, minus the keyboard. Um, the one thing that it does weird is I think that there's something going on with the automatic graphic switching where if I'm using external displays and IntelliJ... Maybe only an IntelliJ, I don't know, but the monitor flickers every once in a while or like does some like weird flash. So I don't know if it's broken. It has Apple Care, so I'm not worried if it's broken. They'll fix it. But it's doing something weird and I haven't quite figured out if it's actually broken or it, there's there was some stuff with Mojave where it would do weird stuff with the graphic switching. It kind of just like Moja. flashes a color. Not like a color because then you, there's probably something wrong with it. It just like flickers every once in a while. That's weird. And it was doing it a lot today. And I, but I was in IntelliJ and I had Duet display running on the iPad. And I think oh. that might have been it. Oh, fancy dude. Because it made it worse. Actually, I feel like I have heard that that is a thing that happens when you're using Duet. 
Yeah, I was using, I use it for the terminal, but I don't know. I really want to get like a oblong shaped monitor. I might do this. <laughs> I want to get like a, you know, like one of the 16 inch or like little LCD monitors. So like you can the get. USB ones? Maybe not a, like an actual HDMI one, but like. It's like a, it's like a tablet. It's like a huge tablet, but it's just a screen. Just a screen. I kind of want to get one of those because the, the duet, it has to run through the. The Mac, like, I don't know. It has to do a bunch of stuff to work. I want just, like, an external display. But, like, a, but I want, like, a really weird shaped one. Because I want to only run a terminal on it. And I want, like, a half-sized. What I would love to have is a 27-inch screen divided in half that acts as a monitor that I can just run iTerm on in full screen below my other monitor. That's just, like, a vertical 19-inch monitor, isn't it? No, 19 inch would be too tall. It has to be. It has to be short enough to fit below the other monitors. Oh, can you angle it? Probably, but um. Why don't you just get another one of your monitors and put that? They're too there? tall. The 27s are like the 27s are are taller than you think. They're like this tall. They're pretty tall, yeah. I want like one that's like that tall. That's like that wide. iPad Pro. That's 1440p. No, because I don't... Big one. No, no, I don't want... Well, that's also a 13-inch screen, but I don't want to... Or 12.9 or whatever. I don't want it to... I don't want it to run through the duet display. I want it to just be HDMI. So there's no, like, lag, nothing, no... You just want a dumb display. Yeah, I just want a dumb display. Listeners, let us know if you have anything that will fit into what Greg is looking for. Yeah, I might just have to call up my buddies at Samsung and help them build me that's one. A- <laughs> Hi, yes, this is, uh, this is Dr. Gregory Parsons, doctor of Java computer science technology. I would like one oblong monitor, please. Hmm? Send me your finest oblong monitor. Yes, you really you. don't want this keyboard? I have options. Let's just put it that way. You, can, you keep looking at it, you keep touching it, and you let me know. Well, uh, I'm just going to do that thing where it. I just go like this. Just, you know, I'm going to take this to work. Just, you just keep touching it. You just keep touching no, it. No, I'm going to borrow it for like a week. What? No. What do you care? You just said you'd take that one. All right, I'll let you borrow it for a week. This is what happens. When you I'll, get... let you, I'll let you borrow it. You want to sell it to me? I got to use it to see if I like it. If it, if I love it by the end of the week, all right, I don't here's, miss here's that the... it has F keys, and I Which get you used won't. to all that. Which you won't because you have a MacBook. If I get, only get thing... used to all that, then maybe I'll cancel my other keyboard and I'll pay you what I would Here's the only that thing one. that I asked. So um, the only thing I asked is that you put the dust cover on top of it when you go home at night. Why? To keep the dust out of the keyboard. I do that religiously. Are you that person that puts like a towel over your keyboard? No, I just put... It has a dust cover. That's for shipping. It's also for keeping dust out of the keyboard. Well, how do you type on it all day? Yeah, but at night, there's You're telling me for a week, I can't not put the dust cover on. Just put the dust cover on when you go home. That's all I'm asking. Okay. That's all I'm asking. If I buy it, I'm not going to do that. That's fine. Just I've do it never until put you, the dust cover just do on. It until, it's not yours until you buy it. So just do it until you buy it. How's that? You are insane. How's that? This is what canned air is for. You don't have to do canned air as much. And also it's more effective when there's I have dust. never used canned air on my keyboard at home. And I've never put a dust cover on it. Okay. Well, I'm and asking I you to do it on that one. I will. Okay, fine. That's fair. Okay. But I need a USB cord for it. USB-C. Are you serious? I don't have USB-C uh, devices. I have one. I'll give it. Oh my God. You have, Actually, you know what? You have I, dongles, right? Can you use the one that has that does the power temporarily? Because I have an extra one of those. 
Even if it's thicker? Uh, I actually don't know because some of the keyboards only run USB-C to USB-A. And they don't run USB-C to USB-C. But you're not plugging straight into your com- uh, computer anyway. You're going to a dongle, aren't you? Yeah, I can, I can use USB-C. So just dongle it up. I have the only... Key- actually, you know what? I think I do have a USB-C to A cable somewhere because my ducky came with one and then I bought a cool braided one. I think I have extras around here somewhere. We'll check. Well, I, it's not like I can't just like leave it at your house one day. I'm really close to your house. Fine. Fine. Anyways, okay. so your t- that was your my pick, pick and your Better keyboard. Touch tool and Golden Chaos in conjunction with each other to make things great. Yeah. Greg, I have a, I have a, a fantastic pick. What is it? See that over there? That is a suitcase. That is a piece of luggage from a little store called Away. Oh, yeah. I've, I've been wanting to... Uh, why'd you get the little one? That's the big one. That's the, not the big, big one. That's no, that's the that's, travel. That's, so they have, uh, they have what's called the carry-on and the bigger carry-on. Yeah. The carry-on, I purchased the bigger carry-on. Yeah. Uh, which is the one that usually fits. How do you actually fit anything in? It's so small. I actually, even, it's actually a good amount of space. I wouldn't even be able to, are you trying for like practicing minimalism? Like I No, this even, is me expanding my minimalism. Because remember, I usually like to just roll with one big old backpack. But, but, but. You're traveling farther. Certain, I'm traveling farther and for and longer you, and I have more camera equipment. Oh, I thought you were going to say because of certain like there being a woman involved, then you have to like carry some of their stuff. Well, she bought one for herself too. So we, mm. so to, yeah, but to even then story, when I traveled to, when I went to Italy recently, I had to put her shoes in my travel. Bag. I, we, we've had that discussion. Yeah. So we, we had, <laughs> uh, we are making sure that we dedicate space to bring extra stuff back and we're bringing extra. Where are you going again? We are going to an undisclosed location in Europe. That's all I'm saying. Is that just because of the radio or her and I, you think you're going to get, you think you're going to get kidnapped? Her and Do you need I'll Liam tell, Neeson? I'll tell you all about it when you get back. How's that? When you get back from the trip? When I get back from the trip. I'll tell you all about it when you get back from the trip. Anyway, her and I went to the away store yeah. in Los Angeles because we are very lucky to have one actually here. It's up on Melrose. Oh, uh, we kind of made a day out of it. We just parked up on Melrose, walked around a little bit. Uh, not like the super swanky part of Melrose, but like the kind of like nice part of Melrose. It's like buy all those nice shops, but then like adjacent. Yes, yes. Where the mall is, kind right? Of. There's like the mall and then you go a little bit further and that's where Melrose is, but it could be anywhere over there. Yes, like yes. It's a little bit uh, further down. But uh, so they have a store uh, up on Melrose and their store, uh, I think, is a piece of brilliant retail UX. And yeah. I'm going to tell you why. Why? So when you walk in the store, um, everything is very white and very clean. And so what it does is it allows these pieces of luggage to stand out. And so they have these little displays around where they're, they're having like, you know, different sizes of the carry-ons and how they interact with backpacks and, uh, huh? and whatnot. And they have this one table over on the left-hand side where they have their two most popular pieces, which is the carry-on and the bigger carry-on. And it's just, it just has two of them. And people can just come and open them and unzip them and unzip the insides. And, like, they have these packing cubes that you can test out and see how they fit, like, squish things down and close and roll it around. They have, like, a little station for you to interact with the piece of merchandise without any sort of uh, supervision or assistance necessary. And I think that that was a brilliant move. Second brilliant move that they have is they have... Uh, an assortment of all the different colors that they carry on that the luggage comes in. They have it up on the shelf in kind of the the back wall of the store, and it's kind of up a little bit. 
definitely above the line of sight when you walk in. And so when you're looking at these colors, you're looking up and you're going, oh, wow, look at all the pretty colors. Mm-hmm. And this is translating into your brain and into like this aspirational thing of like, let me think of all these fantastic things I can do with these be- with this beautiful luggage. Very I like the two-tone suddenly, ones. The two-tone they ones do are have cool. a couple of really cool two-tone ones. So um, it was a hard decision to make, but I went with the like the army green, very dark green version of the bigger carry-on. And I'm very happy with this purchase. Had a great retail shopping experience. Uh, shout out to Kai, who helped us out at the store. I can't open it. There's a code on it. Oh, my God. It wasn't even coded. Coded. It has, <laughs> a, it has the TSA lock on the top. So this is the, the, the special locks where um, if some TSA agent is really, really just got to get into your bag for whatever reason, they can unlock it without you actually unlocking it. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can open the thing up. Don't, don't people just, like, get the TSA keys and they can unlock anything? That's the problem with the TSA, my friend. That's the problem with the TSA. But... Uh, Away's kind of original claim to fame was that their luggage came with. Yeah, power don't you got to like take it. those out when you? Well, their original version of these uh, was uh, these were built into the luggage, like you could not take them out. And then Samsung phone thing happened, mm-hmm. and you could no longer uh, check bags with the battery in the bag. Do so, they even really check? Well. When I went to Italy, I forgot to take mine out. Do you want to find out the hard way? No. See? Well, so, it, would, it would have been an accident. I didn't do it intentionally. Well, do you want to find out the hard way? No. So what they've devised is an ingenious design here where it's a toaster oven. There's a little door that closes over the battery that's hidden under the handle. You open it, and while the, ba- while the battery is still in the bag, you can use the battery. You can plug into it. You can both charge it and charge off of it. Mm-hmm. from here if you need to take this battery out you pop it and it pops out like a pop tart yeah i see that Ten thousand milliamp hour battery you've got micro usb and two usb a's one of them is no c there's no c oh man one of them is a quick charge and one of them is a standard charge so if you need to quick charge something you can do that you can probably you replace to. that someone probably will eventually make one of those with USB. you can probably i bet they eventually will have these yeah, you just buy a new one buy and just pop in there when but this pr- is a really nice size it's about the size of a phone it's a little bit thicker um but you can take that out and use it separately from the bag now which is brilliant because guess what you always need to carry around with you when you're traveling one of Actually, these one of those Risk of fire and burns. Do not open, crush, heat above 60 Celsius, or incinerate. It's nice that it's made of metal because yes. then it's not going to get punctured. Yes, it's not going to get messed up. So then when you're done using it, just pop back in. Close back up. It's hmm. ready to go. Let me see it now that you've unlocked it. I want to see the inside. What is So that's the only other claim to fame is that they have the battery with it, and then it looks cool. It's well-made. Is that for all your suits? So the way the inside is laid out is that <laughs> one half of it has a flap that kind of zips the half closed. And then the other one has kind of this uh, pad with some straps on it that allows you to compress down the other half. Now, I have some of my personal packing cubes in there, but they also have their own sets of packing cubes that are designed to fit exactly within the specifications of the bag. Really like a whole lot of space in there. I guess packing cubes really are a game changer. Packing cubes are the game changer here. 
Um, also, for me, as someone who typically packs at least that much stuff, maybe if not more, in a big backpack, this is actually a lot of room because I'm going to bring bring this and also kind of a day bag, school bag size backpack with me that's going to be carrying uh, photography equipment, camera equipment. your life man that did not come with it i had that but i just want to see if it fit in there gotta simplify your life and and they also include a charger for the battery and it has a uh, little extra clips on it for the various international plug standards i mean i had battery. i got one of these on amazon that was like not this interesting of one but i got like a simple one because this one oh this one converts and adapts you're smart oh and it has usbs yeah, so I got one that has USBs, but it doesn't convert. It only adapts. But the only uh, things that I have when I travel, because Mac devices, if you don't travel very often, you wouldn't realize or don't maybe don't care or know. Every single Apple device is 120 to, two, to 240 automatically. All their power bricks are Euro and English. They have the English or Euro, sorry, the Euro or American plug, but all the bricks are the same brick. They're 110 to 240. Yeah. So all you need to do is swap the plugs. You need to swap the plug size. And they will never, they'll never, well, some places I think maybe they won't work, but um, most of the places that I go, you just, you just adapt it and plug it in and that's it. For a lot of the world, you should be okay with that. But this is the charger that it comes with. Yeah. So it's a USB charger with a flip out prongs for the United States, but it has these little adapters that just slide right on. That's a pretty smart design. Pretty smart. So that's UK. This is Asia, most of Asia and Australia. That's that's also uh, Spain and, and Italy. Spain, yep. The only one that uses that and one is one UK. Is, yeah, and this most one of the, is... Uh, oh, no, this one's Australia, New Zealand area. Oh. Mm. So pretty, pretty impressive piece of design. I like And all of this came with the suitcase, that and this the stuff, battery. This stuff came with the suitcase, battery comes with the suitcase. That thing in your hand did not. Yeah. Um, they include a little magic sponge, like a Mr. Clean magic sponge, and it says to clean little scrap yeah, scripts with it. So I'm pretty happy with it. As someone who hasn't really owned a, a suitcase of this nature for many, many years, I'm pretty uh, happy with the product. Um, my girlfriend gonna... bought one as well. She bought one in the the coast color, which is kind of this medium blue. It's kind of close to this. Um, but she bought some other things as well. She bought a set of the packing cubes. Yeah, I was about to ask you, did are you gonna buy the packing cubes? I don't know yet. There? I don't know yet. I have a set of packing cubes on my own that I think fit okay. I'm gonna do some testing. I mean, see. sometimes in life you've got to simplify your life and you gotta just have the actual packing cubes that come with it. That's true. It's just I like am, everything works and clicks. And I am a proponent of having packing cubes, and I think that's Having a set of packing cubes that's specific to each piece of luggage actually is a smart way of doing things. I'm going to see how these work. I'm going to try a couple things, see how those well I can already look them like now. they that those two already look like they'd be annoying. The one the, because they're not they're not designed for it. What I would what I would do is I would get the packing cubes for the front top part there because you can fit like you can, if you used packing cubes, you could probably fit like six days of clothes in that. Easily. Well, they had, so in this little demo station they had, they had one of these opened up with the set of the four packing cubes in there. You can take the little middle layer and you can kind of compress the whole thing down. Well, then you, you start you start having to worry about weight. The problem with having with overly using packing cubes is 
you are overzealous, you fit it all in there, but then your bag weighs more than it, then you have to check it. That's the problem. So it's like you got to have one of those weighing things and then pack it correctly and then make sure it's underweight. Well, here's, here's my goal. My goal is when I'm packing this carry-on suitcase is to only pack one half of it and leave the other half Including entirely. your camera gear? No, my camera gear is going into a backpack that uh, that's my personal item on the plane. Mm. So my camera gear, my like laptop, and you know some some valuable stuff is going. That's in the backpack. why I love my lander. My lander is like a thirty liter backpack. See, the thing is that the this is kind of phase one. So there is a very specific backpack that I have my eye on. I'm going to tell you more about it once I get my hands on it. But that's going to be kind of phase two. Of this whole situation, I think yeah. those two together, the synergy of those two is going to work. Really I've well. really, I've really uh, had a lot of success with a carry-on uh, suitcase and a backpack on sh- on like medium trips. But when I go to like when I go to Italy or Europe or whatever, I travel like for ten hours. I always pack the bag, the backpack, even if it's small, and then I only bring the carry the backpack onto the plane because I want to put the backpack above me, and I want my feet to be open. So unless you have like good seats. I really don't want to check a bag. When you're going internationally, half the time you have to go through customs anyways. It doesn't it doesn't really matter. Because when you go, when you when you interchange between uh like JFK and Paris, Charles de Gaulle or whatever, they're gonna make you take your bag through customs. I'm fine with that. I just want to have eyes on my bag at all times. No I don't trust the airlines. No, I've never I've never had a problem with losing a bag. Like, I know it happens statistically, but so many people send bags to airports and don't lose their bags. So every story you've ever heard is like a small majority but the, minority. But the thing is, the impact of losing a bag... Here's the trick. There's a trick. You always pack three days of your clothes in your carry-on. So what I do is I, this, this lander has packing cubes. So when I went to Italy, I packed two pairs of jeans, three shirts, and five pairs of underwear in that bag... And then pad the rest in the suitcase. Okay, that would be enough. That that would it's be emer- enough just an emergency for it's the just... entire trip for me. That's well, all I'm pl- like. We intend to do lots of laundry. Like that's not. Yeah, no. If you can, and it's, it's going to be hot and be sweaty. And if you can do that, it's good. But I don't know. I'm just saying, like for generic trips, because you could sometimes maybe go during a cold time, and then you have to bring a better, like a bigger jacket. No, I don't stuff. go on vacation in cold places. Whatever. I'm just saying you never know. You could have to go on a business trip to Canada or something and then have to bring cool clothes. And I'm just saying having a combo of a backpack with, with a packing cube of emergency clothes and a suitcase that you carry on, if your suitcase gets lost, yeah, it sucks, but you still have some clothes to wear while they're trying to find your bag. That's why I, that's why I divide. That's why I, worst case scenario. I think situation. the amount of stress that, losing a bag would add to a trip like that is not worth whatever convenience you think you might gain by checking it. I've, so. ne- I've, I've never had a problem with losing my bag. And they're pretty good with bags. Like they, it's, it happens, but there's millions of people Just that fly per the, day. The amount of stress that... Uh, the, basically, the risk of ruin, the risk itself might be pretty low, but the ruin is pretty The ruinous. ruin is pretty... Yeah. They, so it's not yeah. worth... If you can eliminate even the small risk of that ruin from happening, why wouldn't you? But it's a 10-hour flight where you're not going to have feet space. I'm telling you, man, I've done it. I So I don't know if you Did you I've get Comfort you. Plus? Did you get Comfort Plus? No. I don't know if I've told Are you, you this. straight economy? I, I don't know if I've told you this, but my I have one superhero power on the planet Earth. Yeah, what is one it? One power that I have. What is it? I can sleep instantly on any plane, anywhere, at any time. 
But then you'll wake up. But that's a pretty good power. I'm going to pause on that for a sec because I can't do that. I stay awake for 12-hour flights. I can't sleep for very long. Um, But you'll wake up like all crunched and you're... Nope. Well... I got a... Uh, when I went to Bali last year, I got a full night's sleep on that on that flight. No, I mean, you'll wake up. I got an, an exact eight-hour block of, of, of... I got an eight-hour block of sleep during the time that I would have been sleeping that eight hours anyway in Los Angeles on that flight between LAX and Hong Kong. Man, I, I would have been awake the whole time. Yeah, I watched two movies. I watched The Dark Knight and I watched Men in Black. Fell asleep halfway through Men in Black. Woke up exactly eight hours later. Watched, watched the rest of Men, Men in Black. And then I think I watched some Tom Cruise movie. I forget what it was. And we were in Hong Kong. And it was 7 a.m. in Hong Kong. That's crazy. I've done that on flights to Las Vegas, where the second that the plane literally comes off the ground, I'm out. That's, that's a superpower. I don't have that superpower. That I is stay my awake the whole time. So I'm going to use that one. I know that's a power that a lot of people wish they had. but Yeah, I, I can't do that. I was bitten by the magical radi- radioactive spider, and now I can sleep on planes. So, Greg, where can people find you and your amazing travel tips? <laughs> on the uh, I guess on Twitter, I guess, supposedly. He is at Grigorski on Twitter. I am at Al Park on Twitter. This show is at a public function. Watch out for tweets there. We tweet whenever we have new episodes, usually very early in the morning on Tuesdays. Pacific oh, Standard I am time. active on the Discord. He is active on the Discord, yes. There's I'm glad you mentioned the Discord. We do have a Discord. We will have links to that in the show notes. If you'd like to read more about our show notes, if you'd like to look at them, if you'd like to look at pictures of our smiling faces, you can look at us on the web. This is episode number 31. We'll be at publicfunction.show backslash 031. Be sure to click on the links there. All of our other shows, all the other show notes are there as well. You can contact us via the contact page, publicfunction.show backslash contact. You can email us directly, hello at publicfunction.show. We're on dev.2, dev.2 backslash publicfunction. We'll have a link to that as well. We're on the Discord. We're having a good time in the Discord. We're everywhere, man. You're pretty active there. Uh, if people tweet at you, then you tweet them back, right? Can you just write a bot where someone tweets at me and just discords me? And then I'll know that to go to Twitter. Easier? And then I'll know to go to Twitter. I bet there's an integration for that. Does, does, I bet Discord has, has some integrations there. You know what? Listeners, if you know how to hook Twitter and Discord together, tweet at Greg or find him in the Discord. Let him know. And we'll talk about it on the show and we'll give you a shout out for letting us know. Mm-hmm. You can find new episodes in your podcast player of choice every Tuesday with me, with Greg. We're pair programming on air. That's what we're doing right now. Podcasting is a form <laughs> of pair programming. That's the way that you can think about things. So yeah, we hope that you've enjoyed our show. Nailed it. We hope that you have learned something about pair programming and IntelliJ and packing suitcases for long flights. Greg, do you have anything else for us? Nah, I'm good. Great. We'll see you next week. Yep. This seems to be a pretty common combo, the A7 III with the Tamron 2075. It's what everybody is doing everything with the A7 III. That's one of those like, like, uh, like solid budget price of performance combinations.
this this person took a picture of that. Happy birthday to himself. Oh yeah. Oh, so it extends out of the body. The zoom extends out of the body. That's what that front part is. That's fine, mm. I guess. That's not that really that big a deal. Well, the ones that have the in-body zooming are very expensive. They're super expensive. And also, it doesn't really matter unless you're like on a gimbal or something like that. I'm glad I got what I got. I, I wanted a prime, I've always wanted a prime lens. I've wanted a really good prime lens. That 16 is good, and it matches your use case for it. So, I've always wanted one. I've wanted just a simple prime lens camera. That's Take it. Light. Enjoy it. And when it's time to get the next lens, you'll know. It's time to get the next one. Explain your reasoning for that, because you had a good you had a good thing that you weren't recording because you sucked. <laughs> I'm just kidding. You weren't recording yet. My understanding, yeah, of how it goes with camera equipment, and this could be said for a lot of hobbies, but I've, I've heard this specifically talked about with camera equipment is that you let your current lens lead you to the next lens. Mm-hmm. And what that means is that you've got your camera, you've got whatever lens it is. Maybe it's the kit lens. Maybe it's your first prime. I didn't want to. The only reason why I didn't want to use the kit lens for this is because. I've done enough with the Nikon kit lenses that I didn't. I didn't want to deal with the kit lens. Well, the kit the kit lens doesn't. I know what match do. what you want it. Well, I know what I know what range they're typically yeah. in, and I took some photos with it, and I didn't. I wasn't impressed with the kit lens. Right. So you're not brand new to photography. You're mm-hmm. new to that specific camera, and so the idea behind kit zoom lenses is that they gives you a wide range of focal lengths, so that you can cover a lot of bases, but also kind of figure out what you like. Mm-hmm. Right. So this again goes back to you let your current lens lead you to the next lens. And so if you had a kit lens or whatever lens you have, you take it and you love it and you shoot everything on the planet Earth with it. And over that span of all these things that you shoot, you start to figure out things that you like mm-hmm. and things that you wish you had. Oh, hey, I have the Sigma 16 F1.8. It has amazing bokeh when I do you know, candid street photography portraits. Mm-hmm. I can completely blow out the background on afternoon day in Santa Monica and I can switch it to black and white and it looks amazing in post. But you know, like there was that bird over there that one time. I really wish I had enough length to go out there and get that bird. Mm-hmm. And then I was over there at that other thing and there was that tree and I really wish I had length to get that tree. Guess, guess what? Guess what your next lens is? Probably zoom. some Probably sort of zoom. zoom. Probably. Well, more like a, do you think have any prime, like if I had a prime 300 millimeter f2.8 that was like tack sharp, that'd be the only lens you would need. Because the problem I had with my Nikon is I was always zoomed to the max on the 70 to 300. Pretty much always because your birds are always so far away. Yeah, and it's not very It's sharp not very sharp at, at, at 300. No. And it also had a little bit of chromatic aberration and it, it needed to be on a tripod to not... Because it didn't have stabilization. It did. It had it had oh. in body, in lens stabilization. It was the good one. It was the AFS, whatever the Nikon one is. It was the five hundred dollars seventy three hundred. So I had in body um, uh, stabilization. The body of the camera on Nikon's doesn't have stabilization like the Sony does. It's in the lenses. Oh yeah. So it had what do they call it. Um, VR2 or whatever. I don't know. They call it like vibration reduction. Yeah, it doesn't really matter. The Sonys are really good because the, not only does the body have the stabilization, but a lot of the lenses do as well. So you got kind yeah, of... It has double. You're double dipping on both I think ends. this one has both. That one has both. Uh, I think it does. I remember reading it does. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if the Sigma lenses do. I wouldn't be surprised if they did. But I know the uh, the kit lens does. So that's something we're checking out. But, but getting back to the story. Mm-hmm. As you shoot more with one lens, you'll find out what 
the strengths and the limitations of that lens are. And if you find yourself gravitating towards something that your lens, your current lens does not do, then you'll find that out through the usage of your current lens. So if you're on a 16 and you're shooting a lot of stuff, you're shooting a ton of street, you're shooting a lot of buildings, you're going off to Europe again, wherever that, wherever it is that you went, and you're mm-hmm. shooting a lot of stuff, and you're like, you know what? I I I, I want to be an Instagram influencer and take a bunch of pictures of my girlfriend leading me by sounds, hand, sounds totally like away me. from me. And you know, I need something mm-hmm. that's a little bit more, a little bit more portrait length. You know, I need I need to I need to do that. Well, then that leads you to a certain group of lenses based on focal length that will be optimized for that. For the Sony system, you're looking at the 56 f1.4, also made by Sigma. Uh, and anything between that kind of 85 to, I think, 135 full-frame equivalent is your typical portrait lenses. With the longer end of that being, if you have more room, you get a little bit more compression with the background and such. I know in the Fuji system, there's a... 56 f1.2 which is amazing there is a 90 and then there is a 135 so those work out to an 85 and 135 and like a 170 or something like that and all of those apparently are amazing portrait lenses the 90 especially i think is supposed to be really really good in terms of glass quality the compression at that focal length and it's only it's only f2 but apparently gets amazing bokeh just because of focal length not necessarily because of the aperture Mm -hmm. itself so it's all kind of relative, and instead of trying to pick a lens out of a hat, you, you, you use the gear that you have, and you figure out what you need based on that. Mm-hmm. So shoot a 1,000 shots with that lens. How's that? How's that? Here's a challenge. Here's your homework, Greg. Mm. Shoot a 1,000 keepers. Not, not, just, not just snaps. A 1,000 keepers with your current lens. That's a tall order. Then you'll figure out what you need from your next lens. And don't buy a new lens until you do that. Mm. That's your homework. Does the 6500 have in-body stabilization? People are saying it has bad reviews. Five-axis stabilization. They're like, it doesn't work very well for video. Does that mean it works for photos, just not video? It's not video. No, the demand... you just get a gimbal for video. What are they the sta- even doing? Yeah, the stabilization for video... The stabilization needs for video are completely different yeah, than so what... Yeah, st- so all I care about is still. Because if I was going to... I'm not going to do video for this. But if I was, I would just buy a gimbal. Yeah. Why would I, why would I even try to do... I would buy you one just, of those stupid gimbal, gimbal things. You can do a handheld gimbal. You can do DJ Ronin. There's a bunch of gimbals. Yeah, but I'm not going to do them. Video is a whole other world. It's I'm a whole other thing. I'm not going to do that. I mean... I don't uh, need to do that. I was thinking that we could use that camera before I sold it to you. We would use that for when we start doing... Uh, and, like recording our podcast and putting them on YouTube. But it probably would overheat before 30 minutes. That's true. That's a, there, There's a whole... Yeah. I kind of went down this rabbit hole. Like I watched a couple of YouTube videos about people who did video podcasts. And I was like, I there's no way that we can just... There's no like logical next step from where we are right now to doing that because the way that I'd want to do it, you need three cameras. Oh my God. You need a beautiful space. Wow. You need all manner of lights and you need both hardware and software to control all of it all at the same time because I'm not hiring a producer. And honestly, when it comes to the show, there's no one else other than myself that I trust to actually produce it correctly. So... I don't know. There's not really a, like a stepping stone to get to there, but that seems like a lot. Of work. It is a lot. It is a lot. the The most cost efficient setup that I saw would be like a handful of GoPros. Yeah, and isn't that which you could do, but you probably would just need to record them externally and just have all three feeds going at the same time, and then I have to chop everything up in post, and that would take exponentially longer than how it takes right now. 
Because what would happen is, is that in order to keep the audio and the video in sync together, I'd have to edit the episode mm-hmm. in video tune, first. Time, yeah, you'd have to time the audio to the video. Export the audio into the DAW to post-process the audio. Export that back into the video. And then export that whole thing as a video file. That's dumb. Because the thing is, is that when you're editing in video, you're not just editing the, the two audio tracks. You're editing the two audio tracks, the music track, the camera that has both of our faces in it, the camera that just has your face in it, and the camera that just has my face in it. You're, 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 you're keeping track of six different tracks at the same Isn't time. Isn't that like a piece of software that like times them all together? And then just... No, because how, how would it you make the it? You make... Oh, you line up all the videos together into the video editor... And then you time the audio track to the video. Yeah, you, but you still have to make the cuts back and forth. Yeah, and then you, but then you do the cuts, but you do once they're all lined up at the same timeline, you do them all together. Even just doing the cuts in the audio, or when I have to edit the audio, even a handful of cuts makes the amount of time it takes to edit it exponentially longer. No, but you just like, I could be wrong here, but don't you just put it into the video editor, like Final Cut, and then you make, and then you turn off the audio tracks from all the GoPros, just delete them. And then you overlay, or you keep them for syncing, but then you, then you put the audio track for the, this thing on top of it, and then it creates one timeline that you can cut in and out of. Right, cut from. you can do that, but and then you're, you not just cutting, the audio, you're not just cutting in and out of two audio it, tracks. You're in. cutting in and out of audio track and, and three, three cameras. cameras. I guess if you, yeah, if you were going to remove... There's a lot more tracks to keep track of. You would just pick a camera per scene and then... Make that the primary camera. I don't know. Yeah, I'm sure it's a lot of work, but a I'm lot pretty sure Final Cut can do it. But it's Who, work. Who's using Final Cut? I don't know. Who's don't... using? Why would? Why on earth would you think that'd be using? Final what would Cut? you use? Uh, all the free and open source editing oh. software that's out there and available. DaVinci Resolve is a thing that exists now on Ubuntu. Like, come on, man, keep up. Seems like a lot of work. Keep up. 